I am not an innocent, not bystander. An innocent bystander. I am a threat, am a threat, to, my threat enemy. to my enemy. I am powerful. I am powerful. I am strategic and bold. I will not sit idly by. I will take ground. I will advance. I will tear through my enemy. And my enemy will hate me. I will not avoid the difficult fight. I will fight. I will be wounded. I will be targeted and I will bleed. I will not tire. My wounds will be healed. I will see tragedy. I will feel pain. But I will be restored. My feet will not stumble. My hands will hold fast. I will not be intimidated. Guess what chapter we're on? One. And guess what page? 17. And guess what the title is? Hey, that's right. You guys sound inspired. Inspiration and inerrancy. I wonder what that means because those are some really good Christianese phrases. Well, again, Tom, we're going to get to that uh, pretty quick there. Is the Bible reliable? Okay. And that's really what the topic is going on here when it comes to inspiration and inerrancy. And as we're going to see, the reason why people would even question that, and I'm talking in the church, is because even though it might appear on their doctrinal statement, you know that page that only gets four hits on the church's website, uh, which actually should get the number one hit if you're a visitor. You should be looking at the doctrinal statement. Uh, but usually, typically, they'll have this, inspiration and inerrancy, their belief about the Bible. Okay, and because people are sliding on this in the church, it's causing the church to go into, and this is the new topic, Lord willing, we're going to get into on Sunday, and that is the rise of the apostasy. And what we're going to see, folks, is not only is the world going to go down the tubes in the last days, so is the church, believe it or not. Many people out there would say that, you know, oh no, when Jesus comes back, the church is going to have a hand in it, and the bride is going to get all cleaned up, and it's going to get better and better and better, and we're going to be used of God to usher in the kingdom. No, we're not. No, we're not. You're going to see uh, basically what you're going to deal with, the apostates, okay, which are not true Christians. You're going to see all the phony people eventually leave and scatter, which isn't always bad. Okay, it reminds me of the story. I don't know if I shared that before, but uh, two guys came up uh, uh, in, uh, over there in the Eastern Block, and <clears throat> they, uh, people were holding a church service, and uh, a couple guys came in and stormed in with machine guns. You know, like if you can imagine, guys just storming in here right in the middle of our study. And they basically pointed the guns and said, uh, all right, any of you will give you an opportunity. Any of you who are not true Christians, leave now. This is your one opportunity. And uh, uh, most, of the, most of the crowd uh, left. And, uh, and so then after they had left, there's only a handful of people left in the congregation. The pastor was still at the pulpit, and they were just waiting for these guys to open fire. And then there was this tense pause, and the two men, the classic uh, statement, they said, okay, pastor, all the hypocrites are gone. You could start the study. 
Now, what we're going to see is when it comes to these deeper issues in the truth, this is basic, what I would say is basic Christianity. But when the pressure comes, when the Antichrist really begins to heat things up and it's getting heat up, when he's really pushing for a one-world religion, a one-world economy, and a one-world government, the mark of the beast is beginning to be implemented, you're going to see all kinds of weird things going on in the church. Now, first of all, I believe that the church is out of here prior to the seven-year tribulation at the rapture. But even leading up to that, I think there might very well be a cleansing of the church. Because when the heat comes up and we see real true persecution hit the church, church, even here in America, it's going to clean house because you are not going to get there and literally have a gun put to your head, even as a born again Christian, or you're not going to be sit there and hold off, not just your pastor, but any Christian who would dare say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the father uh, and be, be hauled off to jail because you just committed what's called a hate crime. Okay. Your people are, you're only going to do that if you're a true born again Christian because you cannot deny Christ. Okay. By and large, only a true born-again Christian. I guess we Christians can slide or whatever. But what you're going to see is when the push comes to shove, there's going to be a lot of people just <laughs> gone. Okay? Now, the second thing that I think is going to happen to the church uh, in the last days is you're going to see an element of the church. And Lord willing, we'll get to this aspect when it gets to the apostasy further on in that study, Lord willing. And you're going to see what's called the liberal church okay, who, who does deny inspiration and inerrancy, amongst other things, the virgin birth and everything else, the deity of Jesus Christ. And what you're going to see is those guys are actually going to continue on. They're going to go along with the Antichrist kingdom. They're going to go along with all these things uh, of, yes, can we all just get along? All religions are basically the same. And so you're going to see a form of the church even after, I believe, the rapture of the church Okay, but it's going to be a fake church, a phony church, okay? And I'm telling you, folks, when you, it, the, the further we progress in these last days, you're going to see these core issues will become literally the dividing line. Who is a true Christian and who is not? Let's get started. Is the Bible reliable? Okay, is really what it revolves around. In 1984, in his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, that's when they served chicken at that potluck. It, man, they talked about that for years. Anyone anyway, no, know? Dr. Francis Schaeffer wrote, uh, holding to a strong view of Scripture or not holding to it is the watershed of the evangelical world. Okay, that's it. That's what defines. It's one of the big major markers of being an evangelical Christian because people can say you're a Christian. That doesn't mean you're an evangelical Christian. Okay, a lot of people, we're going to see that this Sunday will profess Christ. Doesn't mean you belong to him, right? I don't know the heart, but God does. You might fool me, you might fool the church, but you ain't gonna fool God. And the Bible talks about that scary category of people, okay? And, and, and the first, he says there, the first direction in which we must face is to say most lovingly, but clearly, evangelicalism is not consistently evangelical unless there is a line drawn between those who take a full view, underline that, a full view of Scripture and those who do not, okay? If the scripture cannot be trusted in some areas, and that's what you do. Once you start to slide on that issue, you open up Pandora's box, okay? If I can't trust the Bible in one area, why should I trust it in this area? If I can't trust the Genesis account, page one, that that's a literal creation, then why should I trust John 3.16 or anything else, or Romans 3.23 or 6.23, that the wages of sin is death? Maybe there is no sin. Maybe that's just a moral story. And it's either all or nothing, there is no middle ground. And when you try to play that middle ground, well, well, part of it is, but you, know, you can't trust all of it. That's when you get into trouble. And he's saying when you start going down that route, that's not evangelical. Okay? And it opens up Pandora's box. If Scripture cannot be trusted in some areas, it cannot be trusted in any area. 
Once full inspiration is denied, it leaves, listen, the mind of man, the mind of man to determine what is inspired and what is not. Okay? Now that's the trouble, right? How would you guys, and I think this is the, the common sense, okay? How many of you guys heard this statement? Well, that's your interpretation, right? Now, what can I translate that for you? That's the mind of man determining what this book says, the Bible. No, God does not speak with forked tongue. God has a meaning in the scripture, and it's very clear. And dare I say, it's clear enough that we can read it and we can understand it. You don't need to have some 14 elevated degrees in order to read the Bible and understand the Bible. God wrote it in such a manner that we can read it and know it and understand it. Okay, and it's clear. Okay, it's clear. So you don't, well, what, usually typically when people make that statement, well, that's your interpretation, it means I don't believe that. And so what you have to do is when you get into those situations, okay, and I've told you I've done this before, I was talking about this last week, I was uh, talking with this uh, Catholic lady, and she's, well, you know, you got to do good deeds and all that stuff. I literally, and I encourage you to do this, you need to get a, if you have a Bible, please, you need to open it up and have them read that. Have them read what I did to that lady. I said, could you come here just for a minute? She was in my I said, could you read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for me, please? That it is by faith that we are saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And there was something about reading that with your own eyes. That wasn't like, well, maybe the Greek really says, no, it's very flared. And she literally, her countenance completely changed. She said, I've never seen that before. Simply because I said no. When people come to you and say, oh, you have the audacity to say that Jesus is the only way. Could you, could you read something? This is Jesus saying this. It's John 14, 6. Can you tell me what Jesus said? I'm not making this up. Well, that's your Bible. Can you get a copy of your Bible? Bring it in. Let's take a look at yours too. Because right, you hear all the scapegoat analogies, right? And they try to really? I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I'm not saying this right? And so you have to dispel this. Well, that's your interpretation. Really what it is, is they're rejecting this because they don't like this, right? And it's really what's going on. And I'm talking, dare I say, in the church, okay? If the Bible cannot be trusted in uh, one area, logically, it's common sense. Why should I trust in any other area? And this is why over the years, I have fought so hard from the pulpit, uh, and not even relegating it to a Sunday school class, but from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, I have preached 41 different DVDs on the creation account, a literal creation from every angle I can think of. And the reason why is because if I can't trust Genesis account, page one, chapter one, verse one, line one, why should I trust anything? And, when the, and the only reason why people disagree is because they're not approaching the Bible and letting the Bible speak to us. They're listening to the culture and going, well, that, that doesn't make sense with the Bible, so the Bible must be wrong. No. You ever think that your culture is wrong? And that God's had it right the whole time, right? That's the issue of inspiration and inerrancy. In, inspiration, as we're going to see, means it's inspired of God. This is not a book whipped up by man. Inerrancy means without error, zero ipso facto, Right? And then we'll get into the next chapter, biblical interpretation. Even though you can believe in inspiration and inerrancy, you could still blow it on the way that you approach the Bible and so-called interpret it. You're supposed to let the Bible speak to you, not you speak to the Bible what you and your preconceived ideas want it to say because you're looking for loopholes. Or your pet peeve doctrine you want to prove to somebody even though maybe it's not true, but you twist it to make it sound true. That never happens, does it? And it messes things up. Let me give you an example, and this is, I've talked before, just give me an idea. If you leave the Bible alone, you'll find out that man is wrong every single time in their objections to the scripture. 
And there is no reason to doubt, even in our scientific evolutionary mindset, to doubt what God says, even on uh, the first page of the Bible. And when we see that, one of the biggest things that they start kicking right off the bat is the literal six-day uh, creation account. Well, that can't mean a literal day, because science tells us that we've been here for millions and billions of years. We all know science never makes a mistake. Wrong. Yeah, that's right. So, yes, they do, okay? And so the Bible was fine. It's been fine long before evolution popped on the scene in the 1850s with Charles Darwin. The Bible was fine all along. Since when, when did God get it wrong, right? It's, you're listening to man. Let me just give you some evidences. Uh, an obvious reading of the Genesis text, if you lead alone, just look at it at face value. The Bible is declaring this is literal days. Children have no problem understanding the meaning of Genesis. The only reason why these ideas are entertained is because people apply concepts from outside the Bible, particularly from the evolutionary atheistic mindset, okay? Now, also, some hard proof, the Hebrew word there, yom, okay, yom, Y-O-M, uh, is where we get the word day in Hebrew. It refers to a normal 24-hour day. Outside Genesis 1, yom is used with a number 410 times, and each time it means an ordinary day, 410 times. So why out of the blue would Genesis 1 be the exception? It's crazy. In fact, every time in the Bible, the Hebrew word yom is used with a number or the phrase evening and morning. Anywhere in the Old Testament, it always means an ordinary day. Always, every single time. The Jewish people celebrate, even up today, the holiday. Maybe you've heard of this. Or if you're down further down south, it's Yom Kippur. Yeah. No, it's Yom Kippur. Whatever. That's probably some really bad Hebrew, but it sounds groovy, Tom. Okay, but Yom Kippur, or meaning the Day of Atonement, right? Right? Yom Kippur, we hear of it. It's on the calendar the whole nine yards. Well, wait a second. If you're going to follow that uh, uh, logic, if Yom does not mean a literal day, but millions of years, then does Yom Kippur last for a million years? How many guys would like to have that government holiday? <laughs> I'll see you. Never. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's paid too. That's awesome. It's crazy, right? Let me give you a couple more. Biblical figures such as Moses, David, the Apostle Paul, even Jesus gave the account of creation as six literal days. No professor in the Hebrew language who knows Hebrews would say it means anything else than a literal six-day creation. But, and listen to this. You start, once you mess with the scripture, you mess with it and you tweak it up. So I said it's either all correct or you can't trust it and it starts to fall downhill. How many guys ever worked on a project? How many guys ever heard that phrase? If it ain't broke... Don't fix it. You ever try to fix it anyway? That's when the springs start flying. It's like, honey, we got to go buy a new TV. I was just trying to fix the antenna, but we need a new one anyway, don't we? You ever do that? It's like the more you tweak with it, you just, just, just leave it alone, right? You made it worse, right? All the ladies are looking down at the checkbook. But anyway, that's right. But <laughs> it's the same thing with the Bible. It came from God. Leave it alone. I don't care what society says. I don't care what so-called science says. What did we see a couple weeks ago with the passage of the scripture? Where's the brilliant minds? Where's the philosophers and the debaters? God has made their wisdom look like foolishness. Utter nonsense, the passage says. Give me a break, okay? So, so just leave the Bible alone. Let it speak what it says, and it's fine. It stays. It's when you tweak with it. And so, so I said all that to get that. Once you say, well, no, the, I know it says day, evening, and morning, but I think it's millions of years. And you, and you try to cram it in there. Don't. Here's what you start messing up the Bible. 
right? This is where these supposed contradictions come from because you mess with it. You don't leave it alone. The Bible says that plants were created on day three. The Bible says then the sun was created on day four. Logically, if these days are millions of years instead of a literal day, then how could plants survive when they need sunlight to exist? You tweaked it one time, it starts messing it up, right? Don't mess with it, right? Leave the TV alone, okay? <laughs> also, listen, Bible also says plants, of course, were created on day three, but plants, as we know, need, in order to survive, not just sunlight, some of them, it's called symbiotic relationships, need certain insects to pollinate them to reproduce, right? Like with flowers and bees, okay, right? Now listen, uh, well, wait a second. If plants were created on day three and they need insects, but insects weren't created until day six, and these aren't literal 24 hours a day, how in the world could they survive? They could survive for three days till the insects popped on the scene from God, but they can't survive three million years. You see what I'm saying? Leave it alone. You don't need to tweak with it just because of pressure from society Okay, uh, Adam was created on day six. He lived through day seven, and then he died when he was 930 years old. If these are millions of years, it makes nonsense of Adam's uh, age. The Bible says that God instituted the Sabbath rest for the Jewish people on the seventh day. Again, does this mean we get to work for six days, and then we get to take a million years off? <laughs> How many guys, I'll take a Sabbath. <laughs> right? You mess with it, you tweak it. You say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm sure they may, must have made an error. No, that was just a cultural thing. No, 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 that's just your interpretation. Don't you know, Mary, that scientists are so much more intellectually superior than us? I, I mean, you see all these pictures of people back in the Bible. I mean, Hollywood always has it right, and they're just dragging their knuckles on the ground, wearing these robes, tracking in the dust. They don't know nothing about true science. God knows what he's talking about. Leave it alone. Okay, now here's what he says. If we allow our children to accept the possibility that we can doubt the days of creation when the language speaks so plainly, then how, can we, uh, uh, then how are we teaching them to approach the rest of the Bible? This is the point. Why shouldn't we tell them to start to doubt that Christ's virgin birth really means virgin birth? Why shouldn't they start to doubt that the resurrection really means resurrection? And why should they believe that Jesus, when he said that he was the only way to heaven? Maybe he's not right? If you don't get this topic, these big Christianese words with inspiration and errancy, you start to slide, it's going to mess everything up. And this is why I agree with Dr. Schaefer, who's now to be with the Lord, obviously, is this is the dividing line. This is why it's typically on your doctrinal statement. And this is why, rightly so, when you guys had me come and preach for you, what's your view on the Bible? You have to, and you need to ask those questions because, again, you're going to see on Sunday, I don't want to give away the whole sermon, you're going to see men from the pulpit admit that they're not Christians and they're lying to their congregations. Actual interviews I'll be sharing, Lord willing, on Sunday. That's the days that we live in. We're in the apostasy, okay? And people have slid from this classic evangelical teaching called inerrancy uh, and inspiration. Let's continue on. So once full inspiration is denied, it leaves the mind of man, dare I say even scientists, Okay, to determine what's inspired and what's not. Once there's a crack in the dam in our belief in full inspiration, the flood is imminent, okay? And then everything becomes subjective, okay? I think we talked about this before. There's two different ways to verify uh, truth, and the first one you can't, the second one you can, okay, by definition. The first one's subjective truth, and that's basically your own opinion. Well, that's your interpretation. No, 
and you're right, you shouldn't be concerned about my interpreta interpretation. And a lot of times people say, well, Pastor, really, that's what you think. Hey, who cares what I think? I'm with you. Don't, don't put stock in what I think. What's God say? I'm just reading it to you. And if you don't like what I'm reading to you, okay, and that's, but yet that's what it says, your problem isn't with me. Your problem's with God. You need to take it up with him. But I don't recommend that because you're going to lose. Okay, it's really what's going on. Okay, but, but, but that's, that can be tried and true. Subjective stuff is that thing. It's, it's what we've talked before with relativism about feelings, okay? And how do you verify that? We've talked about this before. John, he's taking a shower, and uh, all of a sudden he says, Pastor Billy, you won't believe this, man. Right before study tonight, I was taking a shower, and, and the, the sunlight came beaming through the window there on the small window where the shower is, and, and I was up there getting ready to, to wash my armpit, and, and the beam of light uh, it, it hit me right here in the armpit, and, and then the light showed that there was a pattern in my armpit hair, and it actually spoke a verse out to me, and it was real, and, and it's, I know that's from God. Because you're sitting right in my views, you know what I'm saying? Well, I'll, I'll try to work on Ron over here a little bit. He's, he's kind of on the other side there. But uh, it's like, what? And, and he's dead serious about it, right? I mean, he's got tears in his eyes. It was an experience, right? Now, I wasn't there. Praise God I wasn't there, okay? <laughs> Praise God I was going to see that, you know? Okay, but how can that be tested? How can that be validated? It's his word against ours. It's like, I, I can't. That's what's called subjective truth. It's just your opinion. I'm not saying you didn't have an experience, but the Bible says that even uh, Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. Just because you had the goosebumps and you had the feelings and you had this crying experience, that doesn't mean it's from God. It's subjective. Now, contrast that to objective truth. That's what we have here. And that's why when people challenge you, well, that's your opinion. Really? Go objective on them. I agree with you. We should not base reality, certainly your eternal destiny, on something that's subjective. But this, can be, it either says it or it doesn't. What does it say? Do you see the difference? But again, how can you even get to that level if you're starting to doubt that this really is objective? Maybe some part of it is subjective. Maybe some of it they got wrong, right? Once you crack open that dam, you're in a heap of trouble. And we'll get to that again in just a little bit, okay? He says this, a flood is imminent. Dr. Schaefer understood that once a flood begins, there is no end. Uh, at this point, the Bible is made to say, okay, that's what people do today, made to say only that which echoes the surrounding culture at our moment in history. The Bible is bent to the culture, okay? Instead of the Bible judging our society and culture, okay? And again, we talked about this before, but in light of our study, let me give you a couple different examples of why people come to various uh, uh, truths, uh, even about faith, okay? Uh, now, we would all say as evangelical Christians, okay, that the Bible is our uh, final rule for faith and practice, right? That's typically how the verbiage goes in general in a doctrinal statement, that what is it that determines our faith and practice? Why do we do baptism? Why do we do communion? Why do we have a pastor? Why do we have the leadership we do with the structure, with the pastor, elder, and the deacons? And, and why do we witness? And why do we do whatever we do? The Bible is our final rule for faith and practice, okay, typically. So, so, so when we want to go and investigate and objectively try the truth, we go to here. That's it. Now, nine times out of ten, if, dare I say, even Christians would truly do that, you wouldn't have, what is it, 30,000 plus different denominations? You wouldn't have so much false teaching flooding the church. If you would just live up to that one thing, go back to what the Bible says. And then again, part two is going to be next chapter, how do you approach the Bible, okay? 
Because you don't go in there and go, well, I think it really, no, what's it say? It's, it's called Bible interpretation. Okay, now, the problem is, have you ever tried to, we talked about this just a second ago, have you ever tried uh, witnessing to a person who's like, say, a Catholic? All right, here's why, if you haven't thought about this, why oftentimes it's, uh, it's like you're, you're dancing around, you're playing like this cat and mouse game. Because we're, in our mind, trying to deal with a discussion about truth, and we have one source of truth. A Catholic, by and large, has four, okay? Now, they would say, yes, of course, I base my faith on the Bible, in theory. But then when you approach them Bible to Bible, and you point some things out, well, that's not what the Bible says, well, then they'll come out, and here comes the dance. Well, the Pope said, because that's their second source of truth. And then you can point out some inconsistencies with the rulings of the Pope, and they'll say, well, well but, but the, the church council at whatever blah, blah, blah year decided upon, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, okay, then you can even point out inconsistencies that, and they'll say, oh, no, but the, the early church fathers, the witness they gave us on that topic was blah, 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 blah. And so this is why it's like, man, what are you talking about? And sometimes if we don't understand this, we're going, how, how, where did you, who, who cares what that guy said? That, what the Bible says, but to them, they have four sources of authority. Okay, and we have one. Makes no sense. Let me give you another one, a classic one, and that, of course, is uh, the Mormons, right? Right? Why do they have differing views than us, even though they would come across with this marketing scheme that they're like a Christian? It's because they say, oh, yeah, we base our faith on the Bible, but what's their real source of inspiration? Is the Book of Mormon from a guy named Joseph Smith who was a false prophet. So, so even though you start out maybe going toe-to-toe biblically, guess what they'll revert back to 99% of the time to an alternative source of truth. That's why there's so much confusion because we have one source of truth, the Bible. They've got two. Let me give you another one. This is closer to home. This is even in the church. How about the charismatic community? Right? They would say, just like you and I, evangelical Christian, that we have the Bible. Okay? But there's another thing that they got going on there. They have this element of subjective truth called feelings slash, dare I say, experience is what begins to determine the reality for their faith. But you don't understand. Okay, uh, Pastor Billy, I know exactly what John's talking about because I was over, okay, I got Ron's house and Ron was out there mowing his yard and the squirrel came up to him. And the way that he was chewing on that nut grabbed his eye, and he noticed that that wasn't just normal patterns. That was a passage from the Bible. So he we went there and picked up that pecan, and he read it, and he showed Mary. And then, and then Mary hit him on the head with the pan and said, Ron, get out of the sun. You're, not, <laughs> you're scaring me. You, yeah, yeah, and you're not hanging out with uh, John anymore. But anyway, <laughs> no, so, but it's like, what? And with the charismatic community, that, that's where you open up the floodgate, right? Well, okay, I know what that, but see, you don't understand. I was there at the conference, and the guy was preaching, and I was bawling my eyes out. It, it had to have been the Spirit of God. I had goosebumps on top of my goosebumps, and, and I heard the word of the Lord say to me, uh, leave your wife, uh, and, and I've chosen this woman here for you. As obtuse as that is, guys, those things go on. And because it came with such a surge of emotion... Push comes to shove, you go, first of all, you go, excuse me, be gone in the name of Jesus Christ. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Be gone. Why? Because the Bible says, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't from God. You can sit there and say you had goosebumps on top of your goosebumps. My Bible says don't do that, right? But because 
nine times out of ten, you go, no, no, but see, you weren't there. I felt it. It's, do you see the danger? That's even within the Christian community. So when you, I'm telling you guys, once you slide, and we all say, oh yeah, it's the Bible, it's the Bible alone. The reason why there's so many different denominations, the reason why there's so many different opinions is because people slide on this first issue, inspiration and errancy. This book is from God, and because it's from God, he doesn't lie. It's without error, okay? Stick to it, leave it alone. Who cares about your feelings? Who cares about my feelings? Who cares about your interpretation? Who cares about my interpretation? What does the Bible say is what we need to be asking. Okay, let's continue on. He says, uh, our belief in inspiration and inerrancy has a very practical effect on our daily life. Okay, as Schaefer uh, states, compromising the full authority of scripture eventually affects what it means to be a Christian theologically and how we live in the full spectrum of human life. With uh, so much at stake, we need to be very clear on what the scriptures themselves teach about inspiration and inerrancy. Why? Because that's where you start to look like the culture. The church is supposed to be the salt. We are supposed to be the light to this world. The church, the word of God, is, is what is, and this is what our founding fathers had set up, we've seen this before, is supposed to be the dictates, the moral dictates of our culture. Okay, it's God, it's the church, it's the word of God that is supposed to be the guideline. Now it's the other way around. Now the culture is dictating to us how to behave and what the Bible says or what they think it doesn't say. How many guys have heard that? Well, that's just cultural. No, the Bible says that men are to be the leadership in the church. No, that's, that's cultural. That's not what the Bible says. That was just for that time. We've grown, you know, God, I've heard this one. Well, the reason why you got these uh, uh, female pastors now is because uh, men are so inept to being leadership that God had to raise the women up. Really, show me the verse. I've heard that, I don't know how many times. Show me the verse. Because you're, as a Christian, supposed to say that, uh, that uh, it's okay uh, or that this is my final rule for faith and practice. Show me the verse in here. If you're going to make that blanket statement and now you're going to say this is correct theology for the church, this is what it is, show it to me. It ain't there. And you know what? It was good for 2,000 years. It's good today. Even with the recent influx of feminism because that's where that influence comes from. There's a reason why God has called men to lead the church. The same reason why God has called men to lead the home. Right? Okay. But let me tell you what happens when we start to slide on this issue. Here's some statistics. Now, some of these statistics I'll be sharing once again on Sunday, so act surprised if you hear it again. This is in the church. 55% say the Bible has errors in it. Just over half the people, if you were just to do a blanket statement, all the people that show up on Sunday morning and sunrise, right here, just over half of them believe that what I'm preaching on, what we're singing songs about, what we're praying about, cannot be trusted. It's in the church. 50% of Christians say there is no absolute truth. What's this? Right? You know why? That's because we talked about last uh, Sunday or Sunday before was the influx of relativism. Whatever I believe is true to me, whatever you believe is true to you. You must honor my belief. And add your blessings upon it. Because that's how I feel, truth is, right? That's coming to the church, okay? Well, why would that happen? Because by and large, even Christians, folks, if Christians even show up once a week, assuming you're going to a church where the word of God is even being preached, okay, you get, let's say, in a best case scenario, one hour a week of the Bible. I'm dreaming big time, and I hope this is true, 
that every person that comes here to sunrise is in the word of God every single day. And we're praying to God every single day. And we're doing our best to be open to God's opportunities to witness every single day. Okay, but that's not where it's at. So here's the little issue that I've learned. What really dictates the, uh, what is a person's moral truth and behavioral truth, etc. blah, blah, blah. What shapes their mentality, their worldview, is the media and the educational system, the culture. Not the church, not the Bible. Okay? And as we saw before, and I quoted the humanist before, he says, what can a one hour, once a week, Sunday school theistic teaching do to stem the tide of a five-day programming eight hours a day in the public education system? There's truth to it, even though it's dripping mockery. Okay? By and large, that's where people get their truth. And the reason why I know that, because 33% of people claiming to be Christians say that homosexuality is okay. Why would somebody even go there? I mean, how do you even get past, and it isn't just Old Testament, it's Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. How could you even go down that route? How could you even say that? I mean, you literally will sign off. You'll become a member of the church. I believe the Bible is the final rule in faith and practice, but nope, that's okay. So what does that tell you? You can have that on your doctrinal statement. You can assign that on your little membership form. You don't believe it and you don't practice it. What is really gauging your source of truth is what? Not the Bible, it's what? It's the culture. It's dictated. And you would think, well, how could you do it? Because we've been raised in a culture that says you do whatever feels right to you, whatever is expedient, whatever works for you. 47% of Christians don't have commitment to the Christian faith as their top priority. Half the people, if we were to do it just here at sunrise, half of them are just punching in their time clock. There's no passion, right? It's just it's not top priority. It's just, eh, you got to do whatever. People come for various reasons. 58% don't have being active in a local church as one of their top goals in life, okay? And 35% of Christians say that to get by in life these days, sometimes you, you got to bend the rules for your own benefit. Over a third of the church. Wow, that's, uh, how's that for a witness, okay? 49% of pastors no longer have a biblical worldview in America. You know what that means? One out of every two churches, evangelical, that would say they're evangelical, you're not getting the Bible from the pulpit. Wait, I'm telling you to you, Sunday, what a bombshell that is. One out of every two. And you know what happened? It spills downhill. Hey, if your pastor doesn't believe in the Bible... Right? This is just some gig, okay? And that's, how, that's what he's teaching. 93% of Christians in America right now no longer have a biblical worldview. 93%. 93%, right? If 200 people came to sunrise this Sunday, let's do the math. Hey, look at the calculator, thank you. Okay, that's 14 of us. Believe in inspiration and inerrancy. 14. That's the stat. I hope it's a whole lot higher than that. But on average, 14 out of 200. That's it. And we wonder why things are messed up. Now listen to this, okay? 42% uh, believe that it's more important to achieve success or win acceptance from other people than to please God. 49% of Christians don't have a problem with the distribution of pornography. Listen to these quotes. Daryl, he's age 17. He said, kids at school pressure me and my girlfriend to have sex. I, I, I want to wait until marriage, but I worry how this makes me look. Makes you look. should worry about what you're going to have to do when you stand before God. That's what the Bible says. Who cares about your friends? Who's your God? Sounds like your friends are, not God. 
gets even worse. Kendra, she's age 14. Listen to this. This is the perfect thing. When you start to slide on the scripture, then anything goes. She's age 14. She says, I know. She, listen, she, she's not like, I, I never saw that verse before. She says, I know the Bible says you can't have sex before marriage, but why can't you? If you're in love with the person, it doesn't feel wrong. How could you, how could you, how, what? You even said you know the Bible says that. But you what? Choose to do what? So what does that tell you? You can have it on your doctrinal statement all you want. You can say, yeah, that's right. The Bible's the word of God. You know all that Christianese. Huh? Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. All those nifty songs. Doesn't mean you follow it. Okay, a couple more. Uh, 39% of Christians say it's okay for couples to live together before marriage. Christians are now more likely than non-Christians to get a divorce. 27% versus uh, 24 uh, a United Methodist minister has written a book on Jesus that claims Jesus not only condoned homosexual relationships, but that Jesus himself was involved in one, and the minister has not been reprimanded by his denomination. Shouldn't have been out of the pulpit. This one's pretty wild. 4% of Christians and 3% of non-Christians, so we're 1% higher, listen to this one, said they had consulted a medium or spiritual advisor within the past month. 1% more Christians went to a psychic, a demonic psychic. And this one's wild. We just finished preaching this up uh, on Sunday. Remember Wicca? Witchcraft? 64% of the teenagers that were surveyed, I believe, in this study, thought that it was perfectly fine to be a Wiccan as a Christian, too. Witch. No big deal. What's, what's the conundrum? What's the big deal, Right? How could people do that? And this is in the church. That starts to answer some things, right? We shouldn't be overly surprised because the Bible says this is exactly what's going to happen in the last days. Again, on Sunday is the apostasy, the great abandoning of the faith, the falling of the way, the turning away is what's going to happen. And dare I say, when does that happen? When you turn away from this, okay, is what is going on. And that's why it's such an important core issue. Okay, so why are inspiration and inerrancy? Well, if we're going to examine the word of God to see if it's inspired or inerrant, we must first uh, define what we mean by inspiration and inerrancy. That's logical, right, Tom? Uh, Norman Geisler and William Nix give us a good working definition in their excellent book, A General Introduction to the Bible. Uh, they say inspiration is that mysterious process by which the divine causality, now that's your big $50,000.02 word, Divine causality. That means God. Okay? Uh, work through the human prophets without destroying their individual personalities. I like that because you ever read through Paul's writings? He uses sarcasm once in a while. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, you guys are great. We're just little puzzles. Oh, look at you. Have you ever seen that? I love I like sarcasm, Jen. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to be sarcastic about it. But he says, he, and he used their you know, personalities there, is what he's talking about, and the styles to produce divinely authoritative and inerrant writings. Give it up for Discipleship 102. These words are humongous. <laughs> authoritative and inerrant writings, okay? Uh, Paul Feinberg, gives us a good definition of the evangelical view of inerrancy. He states, inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to be the social, physical, or life sciences. 
including the live evolution. You don't have to bend to that, not one iota. Okay? Thus, in believing the Bible is inspired and error, we hold that God divinely guided the apostles and prophets to write down exactly, underline that, exactly what he wanted them to. And because of this, the scriptures are without error and accurate in all that is written in them. God does not lie. As evangelicals, we have historically held to this view, and it is often stated as a belief. Listen, here's your next big uh, theological words. Verbal inspiration. Belief in the verbal inspiration, which means the very words, and not just the thoughts and the ideas, are inspired. The very words are inspired. We're going to close tonight. I'm going to give you some samples of why that's true and why it's extremely important. It's not just, well, that's just the, the thought that's conveyed there. Well, once you say just the thought, okay, then it's like, okay, who's going to determine what the thought was? But when you say, no, it's every single word that's in there, the verbal inspiration, you can't play that game, okay? And the plenary uh, inspiration, which means all of the scripture. So when we're talking about inspiration and inerrancy, we're talking about verbal inspiration, which means every single word, it's not there by chance. Remember what Jesus said? Every jot, every tittle is important, okay? I mean, you said, I'm going to come to a ball. No, I've come to fulfill it. Okay, every jot, every little tittle, that's a little hash mark, a little, nothing's by chance. God picked the exact words that he wanted to say, okay? And it's all there, okay? Let me give you some examples as we close. Let's go back to John 14, 6 to show you why it's not just, well, yeah, in general, there's good truths here. And then they did come from God. I think, you know, the, the good thought, no, every single word Okay, from the original autographs. John 14, 6. Let me just show this to you. And we're just, you know, I'm just going to give four passages in John. Okay, and every single word is extremely important. And it defines clearly the text for us. Okay, John 14, 6, and this is what Jesus said. Now, Jesus answered, I am the way and the life. Or truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, notice, I don't think it's by chance, and it's not by chance. There is the, the article, the, between each one of those words there. He didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, I am a truth out there. One of many, you could. He didn't say, I'm a life. You know, one of the ones that maybe you could choose to follow if you, whatever it is. What is the exact verbiage? This is, this is verbal inspiration. The words mean everything. They're not there by chance. I am the way, the truth, the life. Now that's pretty exclusive. I didn't say it, Jesus did. He didn't leave it open up to discussion. And what I like is if you didn't get that impact, keep reading. What's the next word? No one. He didn't say most people. He didn't say those people that are evangelicals. He said, no one. No one comes to the Father. And what's another uh, specific word? Except through me. Now, how many different times was he emphatic there from the lips of Jesus? Every single word is important. It defines the text. Yet that's what people do when they say, oh, and I've, I've got actual recordings of people dance around this because this is the big word. And when the push for the one world religion, how do you get around John 14, 6? And I've heard so-called, they'd say they're preachers. Oh, well, I, I know that's what it said. Let's just say something like this. I know that's what it says. The guy who was, I got the actual recording. It's uh, from the URI. If you ever want to blow your mind how far it's gotten, go to uri.org, United Religions Initiative. 
okay? And he's, uh, they're out there pushing for all these religions to get together, and that's just one of the many organizations out there. And he was interviewed on John 14, 6, and here's literally what he says. He says, oh, I know that's what it says. But what I feel that Jesus meant by that was he, he was a way, you know, a way, a path of love for us to follow, and that truth that he, you know, he is one of the truths out there that we could, we could you know, follow in, in life and that he wants all of us to have this life. And that's why we've got to come together. That's why we've all got to put these differences aside and come along. It's like, what? Now, nine times out of ten, if people aren't understanding the scripture, that's going to sound really good. Tickle your ears, isn't it? But what did he just violate? A so-called pastor. He didn't say a way, a truth, a life. You just lied. He changed the scripture to what he wanted to. Let me give you another example. Go back to John 5, 24. Jesus again speaking. He said, I tell you the truth. Whoever, notice it's, it's anyone, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not maybe, not might, it's in possession, has what? Eternal life. And guess what? And will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now notice the key words there. There's no doubt. I'm, you're going to call Jesus a liar? I don't recommend that. He says, first of all, it's available to everybody. Okay? And if you believed in him in the gospel, okay, you will not be condemned. He didn't say Maybe. He didn't say, man, you better shape it up from this point out. You, you will not be condemned. You have crossed over. It's done. Yeah, but I know this one guy one time, and man, he, he said he was a Christian, and then he, he, he became a Mormon or, or an atheist. Or, then you're not a Christian. We'll see that on Sunday, 1 John 2, verse 18 through 19. The reason why they went out from us is because they never belonged to us. If they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but by their going showed that they never belonged to us. Okay, let me give you two more and we'll close. John 6, 37. Every word is there, not by chance. Jesus, once again, he said, most that the Father gives me, the super-duper, perfectly obedient that the Father gives me, all, okay, that the Father gives me, what's the word there? Maybe, might, hope so, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will, what? Never drive away. Right? So, I guess we could lose our salvation. There is a, you mean to tell me that we, what's it say? It ain't going to happen. And that's a straw man argument. I, I've done this before, actually, from the pulpit. You'll be like, oh, yeah, but what if, what if so-and-so was a Christian, and they wanted to give up their salvation. You mean to tell me that God would force them? And I've done this. Okay, how many guys right now are Christians? Rest of you, we'll keep praying for you. Good. You are now identified. <laughs> right? And how many guys right now, today, want to forsake that salvation and go burn straight in hell? Woo! Two hands. It's called a straw man argument. Give me a break. Okay. But keep your hand down, Pastor Jim, you're scaring me. We, <laughs> okay, but no, it's just crazy. No, no Christian in the right mind would do that, right? Exactly, and he says, I'll never, you'll never, 
You'll never be condemned. I will never drive you away. One more and we'll close. Uh, John 10. John 10. Here's what Jesus once again says. I give them what? Uh, John 10, verse 28 and 29. I give them what? Eternal life. Okay. And they shall never perish and no one does that include you that includes your behavior uh-huh no one's pretty exclusive every word is there on purpose no one can snatch them out of my hand isn't that a comfort why would we bucket that that's one of the greatest truths praise god anybody ever blowed since they got saved all right the rest of you just did because you lied all right so we all blown it myself included right isn't that a comfort to know Nothing's going to snatch us out of his hand. Once we're in there, whoo. And then he says this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Does that mean you? Does that mean your behavior? Does that mean your mistakes? Does that mean your sin? Yeah, God's greater than all that. And no one, he says it not once but twice. That's a whole other biblical rule of interpretation. Anytime something's repeated, it's God going, hey, pay attention. Is what's going on there, like you guys just did. Hey, praise God, you're awake for the prayer. Okay, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you think those words are important? Do you think that they're by chance? No. And hey, if you leave it alone, it's great news, isn't it? It's awesome news. Okay, but once you start to slide on this issue of inspiration and inerrancy, it opens up the box and then it, people get all messed up, and they say, well, we need to come out with a new denomination of the first southern of the s- sacrilege of the first or the, or the church of the, hey, you guys ever been to this one? This was kind of cool. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever been there, but it's um, Pastor I.B. Snoozin of the Bedside Chiefs Assembly. <laughs> Pastor I.B. Snoozin of the Bedside Chiefs Assembly, or the church of the uh, first St. Mattress. Yeah, that's real popular today. But anyway, that's right. And then you come out with a new denomination. Well, my, I think what it says, we need to stay at home and worship. To, we need to go over to Ron's house and worship with the squirrels. You know, and as, hey, as weird as that stuff is, why do people come out with so many varying? We, we have one Bible. We have one source of truth. Why is it all messed up? I said it again to belabor the point. It's because of this issue. We say we believe that the Bible is our final rule for faith and practice. We say that we believe. We'll say, oh yeah, every word's there for a thing. But when push comes to shove, nine times out of ten is our own personal feelings, even in the church, and it's the culture that is dictating us. And we're all messed up. If we would just get back to what the Bible has to say, truly believe and put into action inspiration and inerrancy, all this would go away. And you know how much comfort we would receive? Just let God speak what he says. You know what I'm saying? Praise God. He's willing to save us. He's willing to forgive us. And when Christ said it's complete and it's done, it's done. Can we just rejoice in that? Right? Why do we have to fight over all kinds of goofy, dumb stuff? Okay? There's bigger fish to fry. Let's close in prayer. Well, hi. This is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, 
since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly. The Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a of death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? 
Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.